0: Section 19 of State of the Union Addresses by United States Presidents, 1901 to 1908. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joanne Turner. Section 19. President Theodore Roosevelt. December 5, 1905, Part 5. I call your especial attention to the desirability of giving to the members of the life-saving service pensions such as are given to firemen and policemen in all our great cities. The men in the life-saving service continually and in the most matter-of-fact way do deeds such as make Americans proud of their country. They have no political influence and they live in such remote places that the really heroic services they continually render receive the scantiest recognition from the public. It is unjust for a great nation like this to permit these men to become totally disabled or to meet death in the performance of their hazardous duty, and yet to give them no sort of reward. If one of them serves thirty years of his life in such a position, He should surely be entitled to retire on half pay, as a fireman or policeman does, and if he becomes totally incapacitated through accident or sickness, or loses his health in the discharge of his duty, he or his family should receive a pension just as any soldier should. I call your attention with especial earnestness to this matter because it appeals not only to our judgment, but to our sympathy. For the people on whose behalf I ask it are comparatively few in number, render incalculable service of a particularly dangerous kind, and have no one to speak for them. During the year just past, the phase of the Indian question, which has been most sharply brought to public attention, is the larger legal significance of the Indian's induction into citizenship. This has made itself manifest not only in a great access of litigation in which the citizen Indian figures as a party defendant, and in a more widespread disposition to levy local taxation upon his personalty, but in a decision of the United States Supreme Court which struck away the main prop on which has hitherto rested the Government's benevolent effort to protect him against the evils of intemperance. The court holds, in effect, that when an Indian becomes, by virtue of an allotment of land to him, a citizen of the state in which his land is situated, he passes from under federal control in such matters as this, and the acts of the Congress prohibiting the sale or gift to him of intoxicants become substantially inoperative. It is gratifying to note that the states and municipalities of the West which have most at stake in the welfare of the Indians, are taking up this subject and are trying to supply, in a measure at least, the abdication of its trusteeship forced upon the federal government. Nevertheless, I would urgently press upon the attention of the Congress the question whether some amendment of the Internal Revenue Laws might not be of aid in prosecuting those malfactors known in the Indian country as bootleggers, who are engaged at once in defrauding the United States Treasury of taxes and, what is far more important, in debauching the Indians by carrying liquors illicitly into territory still completely under federal jurisdiction. Among the crying present needs of the Indians are more day schools situated in the midst of their settlements, more effective instruction in the industries pursued on their own farms, and a more liberal tension of the field matron service, which means the education of the Indian women in the arts of homemaking. Until the mothers are well started in the right direction, we cannot reasonably expect much from the children, who are soon to form an integral part of our American citizenship. Moreover, the excuse continually advanced by male adult Indians for refusing offers of remunerative employment at a distance from their homes is that they dare not leave their families too long out of their sight. One effectual remedy for this state of things is to employ the minds and strengthen the moral fiber of the Indian women, the end to which the work of the field matron is especially directed. I trust that the Congress will make its appropriations for Indian day schools and field matrons as generous as may consist with the other pressing demands upon its providence. During the last year, the Philippine Islands have been slowly recovering from the series of disasters which, since American occupation, have greatly reduced the amount of agricultural products below what was produced in Spanish times. The war, the rinderpest, the locusts, the drought, and the cholera have been united as causes to prevent a return of the prosperity much needed in the islands. The most serious is the destruction by the rinderpest of more than 75% of the draft cattle, because it will take several years of breeding to restore the necessary number of these indispensable aids to agriculture. The Commission attempted to supply by purchase from adjoining countries the needed cattle, but the experiments made were unsuccessful. Most of the cattle imported were unable to withstand the change of climate and the rigors of the voyage, and died from other diseases than Rinderpest. The income of the Philippine government has necessarily been reduced by reason of the business and agricultural depression in the islands and the government has been obliged to exercise great economy to cut down its expenses, to reduce salaries, and in every way to avoid a deficit. It has adopted an internal revenue law, imposing taxes on cigars, cigarettes, and distilled liquors, and abolishing the old Spanish industrial taxes. The law has not operated as smoothly as was hoped. And although its principle is undoubtedly correct, it may need amendments for the purpose of reconciling the people to its provisions. The income derived from it has partly made up for the reduction in customs revenue. There has been a marked increase in the number of Filipinos employed in the civil service and a corresponding decrease in the number of Americans. The government in every one of its departments has been rendered more efficient by elimination of undesirable material and the promotion of deserving public servants. Improvements of harbors, roads, and bridges continue, although the cutting down of the revenue forbids the expenditure of any great amount from current income for these purposes. Steps are being taken by advertisement for competitive bids to secure the construction and maintenance of 1,000 miles of railway by private corporations under the recent enabling legislation of the Congress. The transfer of the Friar lands, in accordance with the contract made some two years ago, has been completely affected and the purchase money paid. Provision has just been made by statute for the speedy settlement in a special proceeding in the Supreme Court of controversies over the possession and title of church buildings and rectories arising between the Roman Catholic Church and schismatics claiming under ancient municipalities. Negotiations and hearings for the settlement of the amount due to the Roman Catholic Church for rent and occupation of churches and rectories by the army of the united states are in progress and it is hoped a satisfactory conclusion may be submitted to the congress before the end of the session tranquility has existed during the past year throughout the archipelago except in the province of cavita the province of batangas and the province of samar and in the island of jolo among the moros the Jolo disturbance was put an end to by several sharp and short engagements, and now peace prevails in the Moro province. Cavita, the mother of Ladronas in the Spanish times, is so permeated with the traditional sympathy of the people for Ladronism as to make it difficult to stamp out the disease. Batangas was only disturbed by reason of the fugitive Ladrones from Cavita. Samar was thrown into disturbance by the uneducated and partly savage peoples living in the mountains, who, having been given by the municipal code more power than they were able to exercise discreetly, elected municipal officers who abused their trusts, compelled the people raising hemp to sell it at a much less price than it was worth, and by their abuses drove their people into resistance to constituted authority. Kavita and Samar are instances of reposing too much confidence in the self-governing power of a people. The disturbances have all now been suppressed, and it is hoped that with these lessons, local governments can be formed which will secure quiet and peace to the deserving inhabitants. The incident is another proof of the fact that if there has been any error as regards giving self-government in the Philippines, it has been in the direction of giving it too quickly, not too slowly. A year from next April, the first legislative assembly for the islands will be held. On the sanity and self-restraint of this body, much will depend so far as the future self-government of the islands is concerned. The most encouraging feature of the whole situation has been the very great interest taken by the common people in education and the great increase in the number of enrolled students in the public schools. The increase was from 300,000 to half a million pupils. The average attendance is about 70%. The only limit upon the number of pupils seems to be the capacity of the government to furnish teachers and schoolhouses. The agricultural conditions of the islands enforce more strongly than ever the argument in favor of reducing the tariff on the products of the Philippine Islands entering the United States. I earnestly recommend that the tariff now imposed by the Dingley Bill upon the products of the Philippine Islands be entirely removed, except the tariff on sugar and tobacco, and that that tariff be reduced to 25% of the present rates under the Dingley Act, that after July 1, 1909, the tariff upon tobacco and sugar produced in the Philippine Islands be entirely removed, and that free trade between the islands and the United States in the products of each country then be provided for by law. A statute in force, enacted April 15, 1904, suspends the operation of the coastwise laws of the United States upon the trade between the Philippine Islands and the United States until July 1, 1906. I earnestly recommend that this suspension be postponed until July 1, 1909. I think it of doubtful utility to apply the coastwise laws to the trade between the United States and the Philippines under any circumstances, because I am convinced that it will do no good whatever to American bottoms and will only interfere and be an obstacle to the trade between the Philippines and the United States. But if the coastwise law must be thus applied, Certainly, it ought not to have effect until free trade is enjoyed between the people of the United States and the people of the Philippine Islands in their respective products. I do not anticipate that free trade between the islands and the United States will produce a revolution in the sugar and tobacco production of the Philippine Islands. So primitive are the methods of agriculture in the Philippine Islands, so slow its capital in going to the islands, so many difficulties surround a large agricultural enterprise in the islands, that it will be many, many years before the products of those islands will have any effect whatever upon the markets of the United States. The problem of labor is also a formidable one with the sugar and tobacco producers in the islands. The best friends of the Filipino people and the people themselves are utterly opposed to the admission of Chinese coolie labor. Hence, the only solution is the training of Filipino labor, and this will take a long time. The enactment of a law by the Congress of the United States making provision for free trade between the islands and the United States, however, will be of great importance from a political and sentimental standpoint, and while its actual benefit has doubtless been exaggerated by the people of the islands, they will accept this measure of justice as an indication that the people of the United States are anxious to aid the people of the Philippine Islands in every way, and especially in the agricultural development of their archipelago. It will aid the Filipinos without injuring interests in America. In my judgment, immediate steps should be taken for the fortification of Hawaii. This is the most important point in the Pacific to fortify in order to conserve the interests of this country. It would be hard to overstate the importance of this need. Hawaii is too heavily taxed laws should be enacted setting aside for a period of, say, 20 years, 75% of the internal revenue and customs receipts from Hawaii as a special fund to be expended in the islands for educational and public buildings and for harbor improvements and military and naval defenses. It cannot be too often repeated that our aim must be to develop the territory of Hawaii on traditional American lines. That territory has serious commercial and industrial problems to reckon with, but no measure of relief can be considered which looks to legislation admitting Chinese and restricting them by statute to field labor and domestic service the status of servility can never again be tolerated on American soil. We cannot concede that the proper solution of its problems is special legislation admitting to Hawaii a class of laborers denied admission to the other states and territories. There are obstacles, and great obstacles, in the way of building up a representative American community in the Hawaiian Islands. But it is not in the American character to give up in the face of difficulty. Many an American commonwealth has been built up against odds equal to those that now confront Hawaii. No merely half-hearted effort to meet its problems as other American communities have met theirs can be accepted as final. Hawaii shall never become a territory in which a governing class of rich planters exists by means of coolie labor. Even if the rate of growth of the territory is thereby rendered slower, the growth must only take place by the admission of immigrants fit in the end to assume the duties and burdens of full American citizenship. Our aim must be to develop the territory on the same basis of stable citizenship as exists on this continent. I earnestly advocate the adoption of legislation which will explicitly confer American citizenship on all citizens of Puerto Rico. There is, in my judgment, no excuse for failure to do this. The harbor of San Juan should be dredged and improved. The expenses of the federal court of Puerto Rico should be met from the federal treasury, and not from the Puerto Rican Treasury. The elections in Puerto Rico should take place every four years, and the legislature should meet in session every two years. The present form of government in Puerto Rico, which provides for the appointment by the president of the members of the executive council or upper house of the legislature, has proved satisfactory and has inspired confidence in property owners and investors. I do not deem it advisable at the present time to change this form in any material feature. The problems and needs of the island are industrial and commercial, rather than political. I wish to call the attention of the Congress to one question which affects our insular possessions generally, namely, the need of an increased liberality in the treatment of the whole franchise question in these islands. In the proper desire to prevent the islands being exploited by speculators and to have them develop in the interests of their own people, an error has been made in refusing to grant sufficiently liberal terms to induce the investment of American capital in the Philippines and in Puerto Rico. Elsewhere in this message, I have spoken strongly against the jealousy of mere wealth, and especially of corporate wealth as such. But it is particularly regrettable to allow any such jealousy to be developed when we are dealing either with our insular or with foreign affairs. The big corporation has achieved its present position in the business world simply because it is the most effective instrument in business competition. In foreign affairs, we cannot afford to put our people at a disadvantage with their competitors by in any way discriminating against the efficiency of our business organizations. In the same way, we cannot afford to allow our insular possessions to lag behind in industrial development from any twisted jealousy of business success. It is, of course, a mere truism, to say that the business interests of the islands will only be developed if it becomes the financial interest of somebody to develop them. Yet this development is one of the things most earnestly to be wished for in the interest of the islands themselves. We have been paying all possible heed to the political and educational interests of the islands, but, important though these objects are, It is not less important that we should favor their industrial development. The government can, in certain ways, help this directly, as by building good roads. But the fundamental and vital help must be given through the development of the industries of the islands. And a most efficient means to this end is to encourage big American corporations to start industries in them. And this means to make it advantageous for them to do so. To limit the ownership of mining claims, as has been done in the Philippines, is absurd. In both the Philippines and Puerto Rico, the limit of holdings of land should be largely raised. I earnestly ask that Alaska be given an elective delegate. Some person should be chosen who can speak with authority of the needs of the territory. The government should aid in the construction of a railroad from the Gulf of Alaska to the Yukon River in American Territory. In my last two messages, I advocated certain additional action on behalf of Alaska. I shall not now repeat those recommendations, but I shall lay all my stress upon the one recommendation of giving to Alaska someone authorized to speak for it. I should prefer that the delegate was made elective, but if this is not deemed wise, then make him appointive. At any rate, give Alaska some person whose business it shall be to speak with authority on her behalf to the Congress. The natural resources of Alaska are great. Some of the chief needs of the peculiarly energetic, self-reliant, and typically American white population of Alaska were set forth in my last message. I also earnestly ask your attention to the needs of the Alaskan Indians. All Indians who are competent should receive the full rights of American citizenship. It is, for instance, a gross and indefensible wrong to deny to such hard-working, decent living Indians as the Metlakatlas the right to obtain licenses as captains, pilots, and engineers the right to enter mining claims and to profit by the homestead law. These particular Indians are civilized and are competent and entitled to be put on the same basis with the white men round about them. I recommend that Indian territory and Oklahoma be admitted as one state and that New Mexico and Arizona be admitted as one state. There is no obligation upon us to treat territorial subdivisions, which are matters of convenience only, as binding us on the question of admission to statehood. Nothing has taken up more time in the Congress during the past few years than the question as to the statehood to be granted to the four territories above mentioned and after careful consideration of all that has been developed in the discussions of the question, I recommend that they be immediately admitted as two states. There is no justification for further delay, and the advisability of making the four territories into two states has been clearly established. In some of the territories, the legislative assemblies issue licenses for gambling. The Congress should, by law, forbid this practice, the harmful results of which are obvious at a glance. The treaty between the United States and the Republic of Panama, under which the construction of the Panama Canal was made possible, went into effect with its ratification by the United States Senate on February twenty-third, nineteen 1904. The canal properties of the French Canal Company were transferred to the United States on April 23, 1904, on the payment of $40 million to that company. On April 1, 1905, the commission was reorganized, and it now consists of Theodore P. Schantz, Chairman, Charles E. Magoon, Benjamin M. Harrod Rear Admiral Mordecai T. Endicott, Brigadier General Peter C. Haynes, and Colonel Oswald H. Ernst. John F. Stevens was appointed chief engineer on July 1st last. Active work in canal construction, mainly preparatory, has been in progress for less than a year and a half. During that period, two points about the canal have ceased to be open to debate. First, the question of route. The canal will be built on the Isthmus of Panama. Second, the question of feasibility. There are no physical obstacles on this route that American engineering skill will not be able to overcome without serious difficulty or that will prevent the completion of the canal within a reasonable time and at a reasonable cost. This is virtually the unanimous testimony of the engineers who have investigated the matter for the government. The point which remains unsettled is the question of type, whether the canal shall be one of several locks above sea level or at sea level with a single tide lock. On this point, I hope to lay before the Congress at an early day the findings of the Advisory Board of American and European Engineers that, at my invitation, have been considering the subject together with the report of the Commission thereon and such comments thereon or recommendations in reference thereto as may seem necessary. The American people is pledged to the speediest possible construction of a canal adequate to meet the demands which the commerce of the world will make upon it, and I appeal most earnestly to the Congress to aid in the fulfillment of the pledge. Gratifying progress has been made during the past year, and especially during the past four months. The greater part of the necessary preliminary work has been done. Actual work of excavation could be begun only on a limited scale until the canal zone was made a healthful place to live in and to work in. The isthmus had to be sanitated first. This task has been so thoroughly accomplished that yellow fever has been virtually extirpated from the isthmus and general health conditions fastly improve. The same methods which converted the island of Cuba from a pest hole which menaced the health of the world into a healthful place of abode have been applied on the isthmus with satisfactory results. There is no reason to doubt that when the plans for water supply, paving, and sewerage of Panama and Cologne and the large labor camps have been fully carried out, the isthmus will be, for the tropics, an unusually healthy place of abode. The work is so far advanced now that the health of all those employed in canal work is as well guarded as it is on similar work in this country and elsewhere. In addition to sanitating the isthmus, satisfactory quarters are being provided for employees, and an adequate system of supplying them with wholesome food at reasonable prices has been created. Hospitals have been established and equipped that are without their superiors of their kind anywhere. The country has thus been made fit to work in, and provision has been made for the welfare and comfort of those who are to do the work. During the past year, a large portion of the plant with which the work is to be done has been ordered. It is confidently believed that by the middle of the approaching year, a sufficient proportion of this plant will have been installed to enable us to resume the work of excavation on a large scale. What is needed now, and without delay, is an appropriation by the Congress to meet the current and accruing expenses of the Commission. The first appropriation of $10 million out of the $135 million authorized by the Spooner Act was made three years ago. It is nearly exhausted. There is barely enough of it remaining to carry the Commission to the end of the year. Unless the Congress shall appropriate before that time, all work must cease. To arrest progress for any length of time now, when matters are advancing so satisfactorily, would be deplorable. There will be no money with which to meet payroll obligations, and none with which to meet bills coming due for materials and supplies, and there will be demoralization of the forces, here and on the Isthmus, now working so harmoniously and effectively, if there is delay in granting an emergency appropriation. Estimates of the amount necessary will be found in the accompanying reports of the Secretary of War and the Commission. I recommend more adequate provision than has been made heretofore for the work of the Department of State. Within a few years, there has been a very great increase in the amount and importance of the work to be done by that department, both in Washington and abroad. This has been caused by the great increase of our foreign trade, the increase of wealth among our people, which enables them to travel more generally than heretofore, the increase of American capital, which is seeking investment in foreign countries, and the growth of our power and weight in the councils of the civilized world. There has been no corresponding increase of facilities for doing the work afforded to the department having charge of our foreign relations. Neither at home nor abroad is there a sufficient working force to do the business properly. In many respects, The system which was adequate to the work of 25 years or even 10 years ago is inadequate now and should be changed. Our consular force should be classified, and appointments should be made to the several classes with authority to the executive to assign the members of each class to duty at such posts as the interests of the service require instead of the appointments being made as at present to specified posts. There should be an adequate inspection service, so that the department may be able to inform itself how the business of each consulate is being done, instead of depending on casual private information or rumor. The fee system should be entirely abolished and a due equivalent made in salary to the officers who now eke out their subsistence by means of fees. Sufficient provision should be made for a clerical force in every consulate, composed entirely of Americans, instead of the insufficient provision now made which compels the employment of great numbers of citizens of foreign countries whose services can be obtained for less money. At a large part of our consulates, the office quarters and the clerical force are inadequate to the performance of the onerous duties imposed by the recent provisions of our immigration laws, as well as by our increasing trade. In many parts of the world, the lack of suitable quarters for our embassies, legations, and consulates detracts from the respect in which our officers ought to be held and seriously impairs their weight and influence. Suitable provision should be made for the expense of keeping our diplomatic officers more fully informed of what is being done from day to day in the progress of our diplomatic affairs with other countries. The lack of such information, caused by insufficient appropriations available for cable tolls and for clerical and messenger service, frequently puts our officers at a great disadvantage and detracts from their usefulness. The salary list should be readjusted. It does not now correspond either to the importance of the service to be rendered and the degrees of ability and experience required in the different positions or to the differences in the cost of living. In many cases, the salaries are quite inadequate. End of section 19.